You're listening to A Day in the Life podcast brought to you by the International Myeloma Foundation. We hope this podcast provides messages of hope and resilience for those in the myeloma community and beyond. Today, we're talking to myeloma patient Terrence Green and his spouse and care partner, Tony Green. Terrence, I'm going to start with you. When were you diagnosed with myeloma and how old were you at that time? October 2014, and I was 61 years old at that time. How did you and and also Tony, how did you both individually handle the news of the diagnosis? Well, for me, um, having had prostate cancer prior, just to kind of hear from a doctor that you have another cancer was like, are you serious? <laughs> so for me, it was just hearing the news. And then I'm the kind of person that says, okay, what's the next step? So I just, just tell me what I need to do. And, and then just trying to get a better understanding of what this disease is. Because multiple myeloma, never heard of it. And Tony, did you want to chime in about what that was like for you to hear that Terrence had been diagnosed with a second cancer at that time? Oh, sure. I was, I was the opposite. I was devastated because he was just admitted to the hospital, had been in the hospital for, I'd say, about nine days now, and he's not getting better. And he's told he had, we're told, because he's not really coherent at this point because he's, he's drugged up and he's extremely weak, like he's not going to make it. And so he was told that he had a mass on his lung, but they were unable to do a biopsy due to his condition. So thank God they looked, they determined or diagnosed him with the multiple myeloma cancer. And that's what saved his life, basically. Something bad happened, but then... <laughs> they were able to locate the, the fact that he had um, multiple myeloma because if they didn't find out that he had multiple myeloma, he would have just passed because he was on oxygen, he was weak, he couldn't talk, he couldn't breathe, he's in pain, and we can't seem to figure out why isn't he getting better. So needless to say, I was shocked and, and, and I was devastated. And I didn't know what multiple myeloma was. And I was in disbelief that he had another cancer because he had prostate cancer and it was like maybe two months before that they checked him and it was still in remission. So when Dr. Angevine came to provide me with the news, because at this point, when I got the news, they were literally calling code blue in his room. And it was like 20 doctors. It could have been more in his room at this time that I'm receiving the news. And I was devastated. Were you both working at the time of the diagnosis or what were the circumstances he, there? He was working and I was working. We were both working. So after, after all of this, needless to say, he could no longer work because we determined that it was such a long process and everything that we had to go through afterwards, it would just be too risky. Some people do return to work. I know that, but if you don't have to, why create the risk? Right. Terrence, how was that for you having to stop working and, and cope with dealing with your illness? For me, just the, every time I hear Tony talk about it, I am like this person who, if I could take this on in a bubble by myself, I would. 
I personally don't like it affecting my loved ones because of this illness. Tony has been awesome throughout this, awesome. And so when it came to saying, okay, can't work anymore, I mean, it wasn't an easy decision, but I truly started to think about my life and longevity. And as we all know, work, the stress, it just would not be good for me in trying to recuperate. You have an incredible attitude. What he does. About... He, he always did. I have to say that through this whole process. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. You know, <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> and also, do you do the two of you have children? And, and how did you communicate this news to them? This was a very hard thing we had to do. So first of all, we have three children. We did not tell them about the first cancer. We hid that throughout the whole treatment process. And the treatment process was intense because it was, you know, people, let me just back up and say, people say prostate cancer, oh, it's nothing to worry about. It's the easiest cancer to cure. Well, I listened to that and I felt blindsided totally because we were told it's aggressive. And if he had not gotten there when he did, nothing could have been, more could have been done. So he had an aggressive treatment, which included us taking him to the doctor every morning for him to get was radiation treatment for a year, except weekends, every day. And we had to do this without, I think it was only our doctor, his wife at the time, my sisters and my four friends that knew. No one else knew what we were going through. And my, and my and my office, that was it. Because we did not want anything getting out to our children because we knew it would destroy them. The last, um, the youngest child was in college, senior year. So we knew for sure that that news got to him. He was not going to finish. That was it. He would just quit and come home to be with us. When we did have to tell them now with this multiple myeloma cancer, the oldest one that you just heard on the phone with us, at the time she was in Arizona and the other two were home with us in Connecticut. We had the two with us in the doc in the hospital because he's still in the hospital. And then we had the doctor that diagnosed him with the myeloma cancer and the and his doctor for his prostate cancer in the room with us. And then the one that lived in Arizona, she was on the phone. We told them, and let me tell you, it was the hardest thing we had to do because we've been keeping the secret from them all this time with the first cancer and now there's this cancer and we don't know what's going to happen we don't know what it is we just know that he may not survive it and he's not surviving now he's in the hospital with this pneumonia that basically dying from it because <laughs> you know um they didn't they didn't know what else what more to do and like I said, without this, without them finding this myeloma cancer and starting this treatment, he would not be here. So it's just odd how the whole thing played out. And, you know, we've heard similar stories where people have been diagnosed with multiple myeloma in, in odd ways. You know, they're breaking this, breaking that and going to the doctor thinking it's this and it turns out to be the myeloma. So in his case, it was the pneumonia. But it was myeloma cancer behind that pneumonia. 
but it was very difficult and um he doesn't know this but so after you know during during um i'll call it the full disclosure with the children and them asking questions from the doctors and at this time now time for the kids to leave but the two that were with us i walked them to the elevator and they bawled their eyes out it was like it was like he he died and i was alone to console them and comfort them while feeling this guilt and this sadness and everything all at once and it was like a relief as well to have everything have them know everything up until mm -hmm. this when you were first diagnosed terence what was the staging like was it smoldering was it active myeloma we were told we need to do something we need to do it soon now it wasn't soon I, and what happens then is kind of in my brain i had to just tell myself okay how am i going to handle this mentally and i mean tony knows with me you can ask me a question and unless it's frankly killing me i'm okay and just knowing and just trying to understand the disease at the end of the day i had my wife and our oldest daughter tanisha there and they are meticulous they are detail oriented and i felt like i was in good hands um so i did not worry per se about treatment or that i was in good hands we did our homework we talked to two hospitals chose Memorial Sloan Kettering. My wife said, look, their success rate is 84%, I believe it was. We chose to go with them. And I just basically tell me where to show up and when. I'm good. That was it. And what was the treatment process like at that time? Well, went with the stem cell transplant, which is- Well, 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 well let's back up for a minute. <laughs> so, so, part, so when he was diagnosed, with the multiple myeloma cancer, we were told about what had to get, what had to be done. So they knew he needed a stem cell transplant. They knew they had to get the numbers, numbers down to as low as possible. We knew he would be able to use his own stem cells, so we didn't have to get a donor, which was a blessing. So they started treatment immediately while he was in the hospital. And then thereafter, he had weekly infusions with um, dexamethasone and- Valcade? Valcade, yes. So he had those, and then he had um, Zometa to help strengthen his bone. So he had that treatment for about six months. It took about six months for his level levels to come down to the point where you can get the, the stem cell transplant. And we had um, selected Sloan Kettering to do the stem cell transplant. So prior to his transplant now, he's admitted to Sloan and he is doing a stem cell harvest. So that took about two days, right, hon? Two, three days, and, yes. And then, and then within the week, they did the stem cell transplant. So you know, it was, it, it, I'm saying this, but it seems like it wasn't much, but <laughs> it really was because 
he's only aware we we spoke to two hospitals, but but it was more than that. I was talking to my friends. I was having them talk to the, their nurses, their doctors behind the scenes, talking. You know, who's the head of myeloma? Do what do they specialize in? Do they specialize in myeloma? So, long story short, Sloan Kettering specialized in multiple myeloma. Dr. Sergio Geralt is the head of that unit. He has a great reputation. We called, we got answers about him, we researched him. He was great. The hospital had the best rate in terms of multiple myeloma cancer survivors. So we ended up meeting with him. He was great. He he was so understanding and kind and compassionate. And and you know what got me was he said, I'm humble that you selected Sloan Kettering for your husband's treatment. And that was all he needed to say after everything that we had seen and read and heard about him. So that was great and very comforting and gave us the peace we needed to move forward now to schedule the the stem cell transplant. It was active, definitely active, and it was serious. Are you on maintenance now, Terrence, or any sort of treatment? So what has happened, and by the way, Sapna, you could tell how um, my wife, Tony is she's very precise. She has all the information. She's very knowledgeable. And that's why I said to you, I, I, just tell me when to show up because I know I have her and my daughter there because they are just good like that. And so I always felt like I was a good aunt. So I know I'd said it before, but I'm saying it again. That is why. And you can tell. Yes, what has happened is when I got the stem cell transplant, they explained, you know, you can get 12 months, 18 months, 24 months afterwards. I got over three years or more, right, Tom? I got mm-hmm. from this thing. And, and that was really good. And so what has happened is that, yeah, it started coming back. So they added a different drug, a new drug, which I guess is the steroid to help the other two drugs work better. That helped me for about another 18, 24 months. Then just recently, let's say eight, nine months ago, that my M spike, I started spiking up. So then they put me on new, uh, new medication, which at, at, you know, at the onset was just draining me. But what they said is your body has to adjust. And at that time, I, my M spike was probably around seven. Uh, the new drug got me down to point zero one <laughs> so wow. so it, it really drove it down and that's kind of where it's been hovering at this point and then they backed off the drug so um the two drugs and forgive me i always try to remember the names of these drugs but one is done in the venous and one is sub q the, the sub q drug which is the strongest of the two they took me off of weekly did it every two weeks and now i'm monthly and so I'm kind of stable on maintenance right now. Is it Darzalex? Dars- yeah, he's on Darzalex, Cryoprolix, uh, cry, uh, and Dexamethasone. Yeah, I call it the turkey needle. <laughs> and so how did you become in contact with the International Myeloma Foundation? Yeah, so when he was diagnosed, I was in this, while he was in hospital, I was in the supermarket Oh, I was getting flowers for the nurse's station. That's what it was. And a thank you card. 
someone co complimented me on my flowers and I said, yeah, I'm, my husband's in the hospital with multiple myeloma and I want to thank the nurses. So I was getting them flowers in her card and she goes, I, I know about multiple myeloma. A friend of mine has multiple myeloma and they, and they go to this uh, support group. And I was like, really? <laughs> you talk about angels, right? right, right. <laughs> I'm like, I've never heard of this. I said, you've heard of this? So, so we exchanged information and she got me in touch, but it was, I want to say it was like Washington or somewhere like that, that her friend was. And so I got in touch with the cancer support group there and they put me in touch with Robin and Michael in Connecticut. So that's how it came about that we got in touch with the cancer support group. And so now I understand you're part of a support group. What's that experience like for both of you? Wow. Just Robin and Michael, her husband, Michael, they've been dealing with multiple myeloma because he's had it for over 20 years. And initially when we met, just hearing this story, when Michael was diagnosed and how he knew or they knew that going to the treatment, he was going to lose his hair. So their kids were small at the time. So they had their kids shave his hair so that when he went through the treatment and came back, it was like, we did that. You know, it wasn't the treatment and medication, which was a really cute story. And then as we continued to go to the meetings, the breadth of knowledge and information about the disease that the two of them had was totally amazing to me because you your doctors treat you these two individuals can tell you exactly what that treatment will and will not do for you i i would say during the calls and even in person we were in person doing the meetings that the two of you do not have the credentials but every time i hear you guys talk I feel like you guys have a PhD in multiple myeloma because they do, they're just amazing. So it, it, it's like basically just having that support group. And even if we miss a meeting, a monthly meeting, we know that the next time we get on that call, they will have something to tell us coming down the pike, new treatments, what treatment will do or not do. And it's just amazing really it's just amazing and empower is uh, an initiative that strives to empower people to change the course of myeloma by removing barriers to earlier diagnosis and type treatment in the african-american community as you probably have heard many times the statistic is put out there that myeloma is two times more common in people of african descent what do you think is important for africans americans to know about multiple myeloma well here's the thing so i, I end up with prostate cancer what do they say dominant predominant in African-American males. Okay, so now I get this unheard of disease and Dr. Gerald is telling us that African-Americans, forgive the word, but predisposed for whatever reason to this disease. We're like, what? Now there's two of them. And, you know, we, we have very good insurance. We have all those things. I would get an annual physical every year that we take it we eat right we do all the right things and i say all that to say that there in some of the african-american communities they may not have the access to that we have the information access and and or sometimes it's just a fear of going to the doctor mm -hmm. so 
I am glad that they're putting some emphasis there because along with creating this, there's a communications element, right, which is very helpful to put the knowledge out there and just the foresight to kind of think about how do we get this information to a community, which quite frankly, we know from COVID, we're not, we're not that trusting in terms of things like that, given what has happened in the past. You know? So I'm glad they have that. I was just going to also say that, you know, we've been hearing from our cancer support group, you know, so they're nurses from, from all cancer hospitals, Dana Farba, uh, Farba, for example, you know, and they're all saying it's, Af you know, African-Americans are affected, impacted the most by this disease. And we're looking around, there's no African, there's about 20 people in our cancer support group More than in, that, but go ahead. in prospect at the time. I'm like, there are no African-Americans here. We went to a cancer support group in our closer to our town, no African-Americans here. So I'm like, what are they talking about? So we finally asked Dr. Teralt, where are these African-Americans that you are talking about that's mainly impacted by this disease? But the story is basically they're not going to the doctors. That's the problem. So I feel like I said, you know, I think they need, they need access to good doctors, not just any doctor, because any doctor may not be able to determine or catch this disease. And if they do, they may be catching it too late. They need good medical treatment. They need information about multiple myeloma once they're diagnosed and they need to be provided with resources. Make sure they have the resources and no resources is available after they've been diagnosed. No, because it's expensive, no doubt. The, the drugs, the maintenance drugs are like a mortgage payment. <laughs> this alone will, tell, will make anyone, you know, be like, I, I can't do this, I can't afford it. And, but that's not how they should be thinking. They should only, have to worry about taking care of themselves and getting better. And they can't do that if they have to worry about their finances or if they don't have any finances they, 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 and don't have access or isn't aware there's access to finances to help them um, with their treatment. You sort of touched on this. What can the medical community do to sort of improve that relationship and get the outreach and get the resources to the people who need it, who might be missing out on the information? Yeah, so, so so since the folks, since it's said that multiple myeloma impacts the African-American community the most, then we need to have, do some pamphlets, brochures, put it in the doctor's office, wherever, the homeless communities, wherever they can think of to get this information known, you know, and have it be stated on the front multiple african-american and multiple myeloma disease what is it how does it impact you what resources are they need to have all of that in a pamphlet and in areas where the african-american community gather most i was even we were on a conference call a while back through i'm not sure if it was the, through the imf as well but we were talking about ways to educate 
and inform African-Americans of this disease. I was thinking even in their area, have a billboard up, African-Americans and multiple myeloma disease and, and say what it is. It impacts your skeletal system, your, your, your bones and your organs. Simple. And, and maybe a number or a website or something, but we need to get the information out. It's like, it's not just hidden or unknown to us, it's unknown to everyone. When you're first, first diagnosed, it's like, what is this? Exactly. Well, and there's definitely a disconnect doctors, there. Even at the doctors, uh, excuse me, the chiropractors, um, right? Because uh, patients are diagnosed because they had a back injury or their back was hurting. And then later on, it was disease that it was a skeletal system part of the myeloma that caused the doctors to, to make that um, diagnosis, right? So at one point, I recall in our meetings that we were given something to give to our physicians, our PCPs, give information about myeloma to our chiropractors. So it's not just chiropractor and PCPs, everywhere where a brochure about medical information are placed or located make sure that specific information is there for about multiple myeloma and african african-american community so i'm going to take it to a different note now and um thank you for all that information and and your ideas glad that you're active also you you take part in some of the meetings and that's great and that's great to have both of you involved. I just want to wrap this up a little bit. As a caregiver or a care partner, whatever you prefer to be called, what would you tell to a person who just learned that his or her spouse is facing a cancer diagnosis? What words of advice you might you provide for them? I would tell them to first get a doctor that is a multiple myeloma doctor, not a prostate doctor, not a breast cancer doctor, a multiple myeloma doctor. Research the doctor, research information. Hopefully the doctor can provide resources in terms of connecting them to financial assistance. If they can't or haven't, let the, I would like the patient to know and the, and the caregiver to know that there's resources out there. They should sign on, get, be, become familiar to the IMF because there's so much information out there in this community. And in that, this community will help them to understand the language, the multiple myeloma language, because it's a whole, it's a whole different language. <laughs> And you have to be able to understand that language so you can help know what to do to help your patient, because he's my patient, I consider him my patient, or your loved one get better. Because if you don't understand the language and the doctors are telling you things, you won't know. And ask a lot of questions. Research, research, and a lot of questions. And don't don't be intimidated because some of these doctors just feel that because you're not a doctor, you, you don't understand or you don't need to understand. You just need to listen and do what they tell you, but that's not the case and we've learned that. So ask questions, understand the responses, and then move on. If you don't, keep asking the questions and, and, and they're not alone. And, and one more thing, take care of ourselves too. Take time out to do things for ourselves because you can get burned out and it's a lot, it's a lot of work. 
But I have to say, my husband does a really good job of taking care of himself now. He's very positive. I'm very fortunate that he's positive because if he wasn't, I think it would be a different, I, maybe I wouldn't be able to participate in this conversation today because I may have been maybe a different person if he wasn't so positive. What kind of advice would you give to someone? You mentioned taking care of yourself is um, really important. How would you manage working, being a caregiver, being a parent, all those different roles that you have? Okay, so definitely uh, it's important. So simple things, going to get your nails done, getting a pedicure done, going for walks, listening to music. I nap a lot when I can. I, I do. That's my favorite thing now, napping. I And it and it helps a lot with the de-stressing. De also, you know, hang out with your friends, you know, um, go away for a few days if you can. Just, and it doesn't have to be big things. Make your favorite meal, make your favorite meals together. Eat something that you love. Buy flowers for yourself. If you're care, because your care, caregiver most of them won't be able to do it. So yeah, do what makes you happy. Little things, as long as it's affordable, affordable and doable. And Terrence, you, Tony mentioned your positive mindset. How do you keep that positive mindset? What is it that you can give to someone who might be struggling to have a mindset that's similar to yours? That if you're diagnosed, especially now, there are so many things out there, so many treatments that you know, were in existence even a year or two ago. They just keep advancing. And for me, it's part of my personality. For, for example, when we, Tony and I are together, we meet in a group of multiple myeloma. I always introduce her as the, as the patient <laughs> and I'm the caregiver. <laughs> so it's just kind of people like, and then I said, no, 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 I am. I, and then, it, so she worries so much about things. So for example, we're outside in the summer she worries about a mosquito biting me. And I say, well, I'm worried about the mosquito because if it bites me and takes my blood at night, it's going to turn into a firefly because <laughs> I have this radiation. So I, it's just a part of me. I, I, I can't help it. It helps me. It helps my loved ones to know that I'm okay. I'm okay. So to, to really respond to your question, because it's part of my nature to be that way, you, you look for the positives. Look for the positives. I, I look forward to things. I don't worry about being there when it happens. I look forward to it. I'm fortunate. My wife has been like totally amazing through this. And I, you know, thank God. And, you know, the church, the church has been awesome. And I'm an open book about multiple myeloma. I just talk about it because it's what I live with. It is me. It's not curable. It's just me. And Tony and Tony will say, you know, he, he seems like he has more energy than I do sometimes and that I have nine lives and, and all these kinds of things. And I kind of chuckle at it because I, I believe that. I believe that. So it's mindset. It's amazing. It's amazing. Just to wrap up, is there anything that I haven't asked you that either of you want to touch upon that you think people in the myeloma community would like to hear? I think so. A few years ago, I noticed that he was tired again, almost like when he was first diagnosed with myeloma. And I'm like, hon, don't you see how you're breathing? Don't you, are you okay? And he's like, oh yeah, fine. I'm just a little tired because, you know, I probably did too much around the house or I did too much this. And 
And I'm like, hmm. Anyway, long story short, he ended up in the hospital because he had a massive pulmonary embolism. They could not find the fact that he had, he had, what is it? What is it called? A blood clot. A blood clot. He had a blood clot. So here it is. He, he said, um, what happened is he said, he said, that's what happened. He said, oh, so at church, we have these dance classes for the over 60s club. So he danced like no tomorrow doing all these um, dance class sessions. And it turned out that he ended up with a blood clot. And he goes, so when he was in the hospital and they were going to send him home and he's on he's on, on oxygen, can't breathe. They want to send him home with me. I said, I'm not taking him on. Something is wrong. You need to find out what's wrong. I can't take him home. And I was insistent. And that's what I want these patient, these caregivers and patients to understand. Sometimes you have to be persistent. He does not understand that. He doesn't like it when I'm persistent, but it's for their own good. Now, had I brought him home because his cancer doctor came downstairs to the ER where he was this day. And she whispered in my ear, thank you for bringing him. Because if you did not bring him, he would not be here tomorrow. That's how bad it was. But he's thinking, you know, oh, it's just a little, you know, something because, you know, I was dancing, you know, rumba and all of this. And no, you have to listen to your body and tell the doctors everything. Because if he had passed, they wouldn't have known that it was from this pulmonary, you know, embolism from the blood clot. They would have thought it was from cancer. Yeah, I think just listening to both of you, just to wrap up for what I'm getting out of this is you've got to be a great advocate for yourself. You've got to practice good self-care and you, if do whatever you can to keep that positive mindset in the face of so much adversity. And I admire both of you. And I'm really grateful that you took the time today to do this interview. So I want to thank you for being our guest today. Your story will be an inspiration to many who are facing any kind of adversity with their health or personal lives. So thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Anything we can do. You've been listening to A Day in the Life podcast brought to you by the International Myeloma Foundation. To learn more about the IMF and myeloma, visit us at myeloma.org.